Okay, so number one, the Bible has always been sufficient for every age. I put, I put true. I, I did too. But I think it's sort of a true question. Everybody put true? I didn't know I did. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, I, I think your, your textbook actually says yes, but I suggested last week that in that they had available to them other means of information to fill in gaps. I suggested that sufficiency isn't quite what it is today. Um, I mean, the fact that they had the Urim and prophets to, in order to get additional information from God. The suggestion is that the Bible wasn't sufficient, at least in the absolute sense it is today. But I could probably go either way with that. So on a classroom test, what are you giving? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I was looking for false. I was looking for yeah. false, yeah. Gonna, but, I put a false here, but I wanted to put a question mark. <laughs> Well, see, if I was given a, if I was given a quiz like Bob McCabe, I would, you'd, have to, you'd have to explain your answers. <laughs> Number two is well, you, I mean, you see why it is false, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that brings up the issue of the modern charismatic movement right. because right. see, this is how we interact with them. They, we are, we, we try to argue. Cessationists try to argue with them that that they're denying the sufficiency of Scripture. Because they still have ongoing prophecies and words from the Lord. So therefore, in other words, the historic Reformation doctrine is the sufficiency of Scripture. They want to fit into that historic Reformation mold. But cessationists say you, you don't really fit into it because you've got prophecies and words. So you, Scripture's not sufficient for you. You can't, you, you can't hold a sufficiency of Scripture, which is a problem for a guy, well, like Wayne Grudem and people like that. Although Grudem has a very nice discussion of sufficiency <laughs> in his systematic But theology. it's a problem for them because of what we just said about the Old Testament. You know, they, they want to hold a sufficiency because the Reformation doctrine is sufficiency, but uh, they've got now new means of getting truth from God, which suggests... The Bible is not sufficient. Now, Grudem does try and work hard to get away because he and that's that's where he comes up with this idea that prophecies today aren't on on par with Scripture. It could be mistakes in them, yeah. and in many ways they're just a, a, a reiteration of things we already know. But at that point, you wonder why it's and, the, and what's and, the point of it then? and he's sort of baptizing the charismatic people yeah. who don't really believe what he believes right they don't take them all as very fallible and no, they, they think they're very valuable and if the sure. prophet tells you to do this you should do it so right. they take them more authoritatively then. the, the reason we mentioned Wayne Grudem I was just going to do you know who we're talking about Wayne Grudem it's a very good theology book. He's, he writes crystal clear. He taught at an yes. evangelical school, Trinity. But he got caught up in what's called the third wave, or after Pentecostalism, charismatic. He got caught up in the charismatic movement. And so he's trying to explain to normally non-charismatic people what the charismatic movement is about. So he's saying, okay, those prophecies that they're giving, they're not really what they say they are. But they're they're genuine works of the spirit. <laughs> yeah. So he's got now fallible prophets right. in the New Testament. Yeah, it's a it's a partially fallible report of what God yeah. says is the words he uses. 
and he gets a lot of flack from other evangelicals on that point. Yeah, not enough. Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> so number two, the miracle of preservation is proven primarily by the corollary from inspiration. Why false? This is another trick question. <laughs> Why is it false? The corollary doesn't prove it. Well, I think the corollary does prove, but what does it prove? Not the miracle of preservation. That that was my, that was my tricky uh, my tricky item there. It's not a miracle, so that's what makes it false. That uh, it's not a miracle, uh, but. Uh, but yeah, I think I would agree with if I was saying the idea of preservation or the doctrine of preservation is proven primarily from the corollary from inspiration. I would say that that's true. Um, remember, there's just very few texts that speak to the preservation of scripture. Some would say there aren't any at all. Um, but well, I still think we have a robust doctrine of preservation. Those two in Psalms. Yeah, there's two in Psalms, and even those. You know, like Ed Glennie. Yeah, Ed Glennie says that those really aren't talking about about preservation, but again about authority. Which, you know, honestly, I can I can read that and say, you know, he, he could be right. He could be right. But uh, but the question you had was the miracle, miracle of yeah. preservation. Preservation being a miracle, which. So I, I just only the, only the King James only <laughs> people say preservation is a miracle because they're saying it's. A the, re-inspiration. The, yeah. yeah. The translators were inspired. Right? Well, they don't want to say the translators inspired, so they talk about the trans... The, 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 well, they want to talk about the Texas Receptus being perfectly preserved mm-hmm. and the King James being an accurate translator. Some some talk about a perfect translator. Yeah. You're right. It, they, they use perfect for all of it, but... Yeah, they, they skate right on the edge of, right on the edge. of, of re-inspiration. Some actually use yeah. that kind of language. Most realize that goes too far, but... <laughs> yeah, most realize that put miracle with the translation is wrong. So they'll say, you hear a common expression, the miracle of preservation is no greater than, no different than the miracle of inspiration. Well, inspiration is a miracle. And they want to, and in order to get the text of Receptus to be perfect, it takes a miracle. So they'll say there is a miracle of preservation. And so you, our viewpoint, your viewpoint is the number three, right? Providential. Providential. Right. So it's not a miraculous. It's not a miraculous. It's yeah. based on that. Right? Still God did it. He preserved it, but not miraculously. Therefore, not infallibly. Yeah. Okay. So give me a definition of sufficiency. I have uh, Bible is sufficient for everything in every age necessary for life and salvation spiritually practical. Okay. Anybody have anything more than that? The sort of that's that's the typical definition you see that it gives us everything necessary for life and godliness. But we suggested that there could be a sort of a a part two of that definition that it gives the foundations of all truth. So in some sense, we can say that the Bible speaks to everything, not comprehensively, but in terms of giving us the the underpinnings of, of thought. 
in every discipline. So, so I was kind of looking for that both and. Exactly. Able to instruct us in all areas for a life of holiness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I think it's comprehensive. It comprehensively gives us everything necessary for life and godliness, but it also speaks to the the foundation, the the the, the, the pillars of of all thought in every discipline, in every age. Yeah, remember the, the two, but not about. Right, right. exactly, yes. Okay. Well, let's jump into tonight's discussion, to tonight's discussion, see what we can do. If, if, I, if we can get through uh, uh, canonicity and illumination tonight, which may be a tall order, uh, then we'll have one day to sort of give us that sort of a survey of what dispensationalism is. Uh, so hopefully we can do that. That's that's my that's my goal. We'll see what happens. Okay, so canonicity. So we've said that as we work through this list list of of corollaries of inspiration, this is the one that probably you have no proof text for. Uh, you might have a proof text to give us the Old Testament canon, but as far as a proof text to give us the entire canon, including the New Testament, there simply isn't one. There's no, there's no listing anywhere of the 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, there's a little bit of a list of the Old Testament, but it's sort of given categories rather than a listing. But let's see if we can work through this. We'll start here with the corollary, which is very similar to that of preservation. Since God's purpose and inspiration was to provide a deposit of truth that thoroughly equips believers in every age, it follows that God must have equipped us with the ability to correctly identify and collect the word of God. Otherwise, it could be lost and its purpose would be thwarted. In some senses, this is the least, satisfac- least satisfying of all of our discussions here because there is no Bible verse. With the result that there were debates over the exact identity of the especially New Testament scriptures that continued for a good three centuries. Now, that doesn't mean there was no consensus at all. Uh, the, uh, The debates were generally over a handful of books that were Disputed most most of the New Testament was was affirmed by all, but there were a handful of books that were disputed, and then there were a handful of books that en- ended up not making the canon that were also uh, under heavy consideration along the way too. So uh, we have to talk a little bit about how we know that we have the right books of the Bible, and it's a, perhaps a little bit difficult for us to do because again, there's no proof text for us, and there's no Bible verse that gives us the list. And so uh, we're going to have to go out on a, uh, and, and rely very heavily on the corollary. Okay? So the definition of canonicity, and start here, the English term canon comes from an ancient root that's discoverable in a great number of languages, Greek, Hebrew, but also some much more ancient languages even than these. It carries the idea of a, an authoritative norming standard usually in the form of a measuring rod or what we might think of as a yardstick or a, or a common ruler. Okay, so a canon is something that rules. So applied to the scripture, the term has two senses. 
actively, Scripture is a canon in that it rules us, it informs our faith and practice, but also, passively, and this is really what we're looking at, uh, the Scripture is canonical when it is recognized for its authority and added to this official list of authoritative books. So we recognize it as this ruler. And so that's usually what we're talking about when we talk about canonicity. Okay, so how do we, the question then here is, how do we know that this is the Bible? How do we know that we have the right books? How do we know we're not missing some? How do we know that there's not some extras that snuck in that don't belong? Okay, so that's the question we have to answer here. So that's the definition of canon. The idea of canonicity is uh, has has a long history here, connected with the production of the various portions of the Bible. Is something of a can- canonical consciousness, and I don't hold that this is an absolute thing. But most of the time, it seems when the scripture writers were writing scripture, they knew it. There may be some exceptions to this. I suspect that when when Solomon was writing his fifteen hundred proverbs, he didn't, you know, you know, there wasn't a glow around the ones that he knew were going to be included in the canon. Same with the Psalms. These collections of there there were more Psalms that were out there. Uh, did David know which ones were the ones that were going to make him? I I, I kind of doubt it. Uh, but uh, um, most of the time, it would seem that the scripture writers knew when they were writing scripture. And at least and at least uh, this, this, this is shown as we work our way through the scriptures. Certain writings were collected as soon as they were written many times. Uh, Exodus 25, as soon as the Ten Commandments were written, they were stuck into the box. You know, this was the Ark of the Covenant. This is the Ark of the Testament. In fact, that's the purpose of the box, right? The Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant is where they kept the records, the, the, the covenant, the testimony. And so once these uh, books were recognized as canonical as part of the testimony, they were put in the box that was made specifically for this purpose. And so we find that as soon as he's done with uh, the, the Ten Commandments, they go in the box. At the end of Deuteronomy, we find that Moses takes what he has written, presumably the entirety of the Torah, Perhaps he's only talking about the Palestinian covenant that's just recently been enacted. Uh, But probably it's the whole of the Torah. Joshua does the same thing. He puts his his book into the box as soon as he's done writing it. So there's this understanding that they're they're putting stuff in the box because it's the official record. Uh, And presumably, although we don't have much by way of records of this, presumably there was more. Uh, that was being, you know, added to this box uh, uh, periodically. Christ displays familiarity with a very well-defined body of literature. I say an exclusive body of literature. He speaks of it in Luke twenty-four forty-four as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Okay, and. Uh, we, even today, we have the, uh, the, the the Hebrew canon is divided into three sections: the Law, the Torah, the Prophets, the Nevi'im, and then the Ketuvim, which is which are technically the writings. The Psalms are the biggest part of the writings. There are a few other books along the way with the Psalms, but the Psalms dominate 
uh, this section. So these are the three traditional sections of the Old Testament canon that were very well defined in Christ's day. So there is a sense in which we do have a proof text for the Old Testament. It's not a comprehensive listing, but it 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 comes pretty close to giving us an absolute an absolute statement as to what the Old Testament canon should look like. The fact that the scriptures cannot be broken doesn't make sense unless the Bible of his day was fixed and, and an inviolable unit. So he says that the scriptures, this block of material, cannot be, you know, you know, taken piecemeal. Parts of it make it, parts of it don't. So it assumes there that there has to be a block that everyone recognizes. He also, as we said uh, earlier, anticipated a completed body of authoritative truth. He anticipates a new canon, but he doesn't really give us a listing. Perhaps gives us some clues. Uh, He does say in that passage, remember, that uh, you are going to testify because you were with me from the beginning, which is the basis for uh, what is often thought of as the primary uh, criterion for putting something into the New Testament canon. It was written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. Okay, so that's that's often the first the first line of, of of examination. Is it written by someone who was with Jesus? New Testament writers also viewed the scriptures as a specific and growing aggregate in the era of the apostles, so they knew what the scriptures were and what they weren't. And they were rec- they were recognizing that Paul's writing uh, is is actually going to be a part of this Timothy in Timothy Paul cites Luke so probably the gospels are are uh, beginning to be recognized as scripture and then Peter identifies some of the writings of Paul as canonical they distort uh, Paul and the rest of the scriptures implying then that Paul Paul's writings are among the scriptures and then, when we have these warning passages, and these, these are, I think, very important to us, against adding to or deleting from these authorized materials, this assumes that the scripture writers had an exclusive canon in view. So at the end of the Torah, at the end of the Ketuvim, and at the end of the New Testament, there are these warnings. Okay, Don't add to what's been written. Moses says it. Solomon says it at the uh, close of the Ecclesiastes, don't add to this. And then John sort of stands on his head and says, don't add to this or your, or your very mortal, your, 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 your immortal soul could be at stake if you add to this. I mean, he's, he's particularly uh, concerned about this, uh, which I do think is probably a, a, uh, this intensification is his indication not only that this section of the Bible was done, or his book was done, but that this is the last book. You know, no more after this one. Uh, so, so all of this sort of suggests uh, that uh, uh, they, uh, they 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 were seeing the Bible as a block, a fixed block, a finite block of information that was identifiable, and so there shouldn't be anything added to it. Okay. Do they think the uh, ark is still hidden somewhere? 
There's some suggestions that it might be. My guess it's been this that has been destroyed. Washington D.C. Yeah, it's in Smithsonian. Yeah, but <laughs> but it's doubtful that it would, could possibly even have survived the elements. I mean, even if it were preserved, uh, you, you, uh, you know, somehow, somehow not destroyed, you would think it would have mostly rotted by now. A lot of it would. I mean, it has some, has some gold coverings on it, but it seems hard to imagine that it could even have physically survived. Um, my guess is this is gone. I, I think there's probably God very carefully made sure that in his providence that there aren't any of these fetishes that could be preserved. There are no real... The cross wasn't preserved. Right. You know, right. The, I mean, we have all these relics, but there yeah, people would worship the yes, relic rather exactly. than the Lord. Wouldn't do. <laughs> Wouldn't do. Yes. Right. So and so that's for that reason, I would guess that the the Ark of the Covenant is long gone. So it takes care of two ra- two of the raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I say here. I asked this question, Should this does this mean that the scripture writers always knew when they were writing under inspiration? They said oftentimes that would have been the case, probably not always. But, but I, I, I note here that Paul doesn't seem to distinguish between the writings that he made that made it to the canon and the ones that didn't. So he references letters to the Laodiceans and and additional letters to the Corinthians that we don't have any longer. He seems to think of them as equally authoritative. It's hard to know. If, you know, if you would have asked him, was this was this scripture when you wrote it? Would he have been able to say, yeah, the, the second and fourth letters that I wrote to Corinth, those are those are legitimate, but one and three, those aren't. I'm guessing he thought of them as more or less equal in authority. Did he know which ones were scripture and which ones weren't? I, I kind of, I have my doubts on that, but maybe he did. I know I know some really hold pretty firmly to a canonical consciousness that they always knew when they were written the Bible. I'm not sure that, uh, I'm not sure that I can quite get there. I like the idea. It would make things very neat and clean. I'm just not sure that it holds up under scrutiny. Do you, do you have a Thoughts on that? No, I agree. Okay. Reading through the Old Testament, it made me think of something as now when they anointed King Saul, like he prophesied. So you would know that the Spirit of God has come on you, right? And you would prophesy. So you would, would you recognize that, like, the Spirit of the Lord came on me, I did this. Would that be a conscious thing there? I know it's different yeah. writing scripture. Well, for, uh, partic- and, then, and then, you know, the complication with Saul is that yeah. he seemed to be almost entranced and, and doing something against his will, yeah. which is, so, yeah, it's, like, if there was another, uh, you know, yeah. you know, co- uh, stone in the cog, into the, uh, into the gears there. Like I say, I think probably most of the time they did. But did they all the time? I'm I'm thinking no. And even then, a prophetic consciousness is not the same as a canonical right, consciousness right, because, yeah, I, I mean, the prophets said more than they wrote. Did they know which ones were going? 
you know, when they spoke these words, these, this one's scripture. This one's just a, an authoritative statement I'm making, but it's not scripture. Did he know that? I, I really have my doubts on that. I know Dr. McCune held very strongly to a canonical consciousness, but at, at the end of the day, I, I've not been able quite to accept it. So, how do we know we have the right Bible? We'll start with Old Testament. That's easy. It's only three points. You can see that the uh, the next point, New Testament canon, is about almost two pages. So, um, shows you how where the where the questions are. The idea, Old Testament canon, the idea of canonicity as an aggregate testimony, is reflected, as I've said here in the pattern of collecting these various scriptures for safekeeping. Why these specific books are collected is not stated. There there does seem to be sort of a set of criteria, much like we're going to to set up for the New Testament, Uh, perhaps a little bit bit different, but uh, there's priority given to the writings of the prophets and of the wise men. So Deuteronomy 18 has reference to the prophets, Ecclesiastes 12, to the writings of the wise men. Um, and so these are these are given priority. And the law was given as an arbiter of later claims to divine authority. Now we typically don't like to have a canon within a canon. You know, there's a there's a section of the Bible that's more certain than all the rest of them. But in the Old Testament, we sort of do have a little bit of that. Because you know we are we are told right up front that the law is sacrosanct. There aren't any mistakes in it. It's it's you know that yeah Psalm 119. There aren't any mistakes in it. It's been preserved. This is the this is canonical without question. And then when other materials come and say and uh, are they're, they're 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 candidates for being included, what's the question? Do they agree with what Moses said? In fact, that was the uh, um, that's the the statement here in Deuteronomy 18. How do we know that a prophet is 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 legitimate? Well, does what he say come true, and does it agree with what has already been written? And then Isaiah 8, the question, because there were there were prophets speaking in the court. Some of them were legitimate prophets. Some of them were not. And the question is asked in Isaiah: How do we know who's telling the truth and who isn't? And his and Isaiah's answer was very sim- simple: to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to the words of the law, they have not the light of day. Okay, so we have then with the with the law sort of a measuring rod, a, a canon for the rest of the Old Testament canon, if you will, uh, that lets us know uh, what should should or should not be included. So uh, again, we're going to see this. Yeah, we're going to talk about apostolicity for the New Testament. Well, in the Old Testament, we have we might call it prophetisity. You know, uh, is, has it been written by a prophet or a wise man? We also then have uh, this this I- idea of of the uh, the internal harmony of of the scriptures. Does it agree with itself? Uh, and so again, we've got something similar in the New Testament. So some of the same questions are seem to be asked and answered here in the Old Testament. The, the reason why the Old Testament doesn't 
get as much scrutiny as the new, though, is because Christ very explicitly identified the Old Testament as the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, which is the traditional threefold division of the Old Testament, containing no more and no less than our present 39 English books of the Old Testament. It's actually 22 in Hebrew, but uh, but uh, the but they're organized differently. But the same books that we have today are are accredited by Christ, and so there's really no question today about what should or should not be included in the Old Testament. Now, there's there might be a handful of Psalms. In fact, there's there's a Psalm 151 that is highly regarded by some. It's in the Septuagint has an extra Psalm in it. Um, Perhaps there's at least a, a little quibble over a piece of it, but as far as what books are included, there's really no question on, on that. Okay, It's also interesting, I don't know if it's compelling here, but it's also interesting to note that every Old Testament book except Esther is quoted in the New Testament, but none of the 14 books of the Apocrypha are cited in the, in the New Testament, which... Again, it's an argument from silence here, but it's a it's a it's a telling argument, I, I think, nonetheless. And so, uh, well, isn't Enoch quoted from Jude? Right, but I, I, that's not okay. When I say the apocrypha, I'm, I'm talking about the, the the Catholic apocrypha. That's that's what. Yes, Enoch is is an apocryphal book, but it's not in the apocrypha, the the fourteen books that are recognized by the Catholic Church. Yeah, there's actually a couple of books that are cited, um, but uh, but um, none of the 14 books that vie for inclusion uh, were added in the 15th century, 16th century. Okay, so the Old Testament, there's really not much question, uh, but New Testament does become much more complicated. There are several objective criteria, as I've sort of hinted already, that help us narrow things down. But no combination of these criteria will successfully give to us the 27 books of the New Testament. So they help us narrow things down some, but they don't give us the 27 books. Let's see if we can't demonstrate this. Christ specifically indicates that all of the material necessary for the Christian church would be given through the apostles, those who have been with me from the beginning. So it's possible, I think, then, to give one criteria for canonicity here, and that's apostolicity, which is generally regarded as the first of the of the qualifications for inclusion in the canon. It has to have been written by an apostle. Ephesians 2.20, I think, sort of bears that out as well. The church is built on the foundation of the of, of the apostles and prophets. Okay, so, again, they, 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 these writings are primary. But I say here, this is not ultimately determinative. Why not? Well, it has to make some rather awkward explanations as to how we include Luke, James, Jude, Mark, and the unknown author of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, so was that person with Christ from the beginning? It's hard to say because we don't know who it is. Uh, but uh, some of these were not. Luke wasn't. Now, Mark apparently was a 
uh, a very very much an associate of Peter, and so some would suggest that Mark is that's that's Peter's that's Peter's Peter's gospel, maybe. Uh, the others probably were not with Christ uh, the entire time, although it's possible they were at least with him part of the time. Also, another problem with this is Paul. He's he wrote more books than he wrote half the books, right? of the New Testament. He was not present at the John 14 event, but was rather, as 1 Corinthians 15, 8 says, an abnormally born apostle. So he calls himself an apostle, but he recognizes that he is not an apostle who has been with Christ from the beginning, which is what Jesus says. Those are the ones, that's who's going to write the scriptures. So Paul, yes, he was an apostle, but not one of the apostles to whom Christ was referencing when he made this statement. So it already creates, again, more of a problem. It also fails to explain why some of the writings of the apostles were not included. Further, if we want to expand this to be the apostle or a close associate of of an apostle, which is often what's done, then we have other books. We have additional books that perhaps could be included. Polycarp, for instance, was a very close associate of the Apostle John, and he wrote several letters, most famous here, a letter to the Corinthians. But his books didn't make anything. You, you maybe, maybe never even heard of it before tonight. But uh, it, was, it was under consideration in the early church, but ultimately it was rejected. Was there any evidence of any of the other apostles ever writing anything? Well, Paul, we know, wrote at least... Three other letters. No, I mean the, the oh, other the other, 12, the, the other twelve eleven that were left. Yeah, not that I know of. Not not anything that's credible. Right. I mean, there's I mean, there's this Gospel of Thomas and and some others that probably cannot be credited to the those apostles. Uh, could they? I'm, I'm sure they they all wrote. I mean, they they were probably literate people, so they could have and but there's no evidence. other information on the one that they uh, when they threw the lots that replaced Judas uh-huh. is there any evidence that he actually was one of them other than what it said in the Bible oh you mean Matthias Matthias well yeah that's yeah, I don't want to get into a field on that one it's a big question <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> whether they were actually doing the right thing some some suggest that they were, they were mistaken mm-hmm. in doing this uh but as far as I know, he never wrote anything. So, because yeah, in Revelation it says that the foundations will have the names of the apostles. Right. So who's number twelve? Right. Yeah. Who's number? Is that Paul? It's not it's Paul. It's, it's Matthias. <laughs> <laughs> Later in the Book of Acts, a couple of times it says that the all the apostles did miracles and wonders. So it looks like that's Matthias. He's, he's not singled out. Is not doing okay. that. And uh, Paul in First Corinthians fifteen. When he's talking about I'm abnormally born, he talks about the twelve. Right. So he doesn't he doesn't put himself in the category of the twelve. So I don't think he's in the category of the twelve. Right. Probably Matthias. My guess is, through prophetic revelation, that uh, Jesus told these guys during the forty days, "Hey, select another apostle." I don't think they were probably bright enough. <laughs> he said, "You better you need to select someone to replace Judas," because Peter is very clear on. 
you know, we've got to do this. We've got to do right. this. That appeal to that song is. I, oh, I know, I know, but it, you know, but yeah, but I think Jesus probably said, "Hey, you better, you got to choose another guy." I mean, I think, yeah. I think it's Matthias probably. Who else would it be? There's hard to believe it's anybody else. Guess we'll find out when we get to yeah. <laughs> see, see the names. Yeah, yeah. You gotta go look around the names. Yeah. Say, yeah. <laughs> it's the first place you're gonna go. Don't, don't tell me if you see somebody's name up there when we get to heaven. I'm wrong. Okay, just forget, forget this discussion. Well, yeah. okay. I'll send you a note back. Uh, okay. <laughs> Let's go for a walk. I gotta show you something. So the first test is that of apostolicity, but it doesn't really give us any closure so let's move on to another criterion and that is orthodoxy again this is very similar to what we saw in the Old Testament it uh, appears as a test both of extra biblical prophecies and then extra apostolic teachings right remember Deuteronomy 18 and uh, Isaiah 8 say if it doesn't agree with what's been written then reject it Paul seems to suggest here something similar in Galatians 1. Remember, he says, if somebody comes to you bringing a gospel other than what you have received, let it be accursed. So, again, he, he seems to be suggesting here that there's a, there's a block of material. Whether it's been written yet at this point is unlikely, because Galatians is one of the first books that's written. Uh, but there seems to be at least this apostolic body of truth that is already starting to coalesce. Uh, perhaps there are some creeds that are actually uh, uh, circulating already at this point. Uh, but there's something here to compare uh, additional materials that that uh, are that come into the church. How do we know whether it's legitimate? Well, does it agree with what you've already heard? Again, this criterion helps us. I mean, if we find something that is contradictory uh, to the received books of the New Testament, then we know it's false, but it still doesn't give us everything we need. One, it begs the question, especially in the New Testament, because it only works if there's already a valid canon in place. Okay? So so how do we, you know, how, this, this book here doesn't agree with what we've received. Well, how do we know what's been received? Well, there has to be a canon already in formation. And so, how do you know that those original books were belong? So, it, it actually sort of begs the question. Uh, it, it assumes that there's certain ones that are, that are canonical beyond doubt, and then there's others that are less, less certain. And then, it also cannot explain the exclusion of other Orthodox writings. I say here Polycarp's epistles, and also the Shepherd of Hermas. There's a several there's several books that uh, were very highly regarded in the early church that actually make some of the early lists of the canonical books of the New Testament, but were ultimately rejected. But you, know, you look at the material and you say there's nothing unorthodox about what's included here. It seems to be all you know, very good material. Uh, but for some reason, even though it was orthodox, it was not included. So again, this, this question is helpful. It narrows down a little bit further, but it doesn't give us closure. So let's move on to a third. Third criterion is that of Catholicity. 
and don't get hung up on that word. Don't, don't think Roman Catholic here. Uh, Catholic simply means universal. So the, the Holy Catholic Church actually appears in even some Protestant creeds, right? Uh, it's because the Catholic simply means the universal church. Uh, now, the Roman Catholic Church thinks they have a monopoly on the on the word, and so uh, they, they call themselves the Catholic Church. But uh, Catholic in itself is not a bad word, uh, so it simply means universal. So the idea here is if it's universally received by the leaders of the church at large, then we should we should embrace it. This also found, finds validation, at least in principle, in the New Testament. It, you know, it's received by all. It's a line that shows up there in Paul's writings. But again, this criterion cannot by itself, even in conjunction with the others, produce our exact canon. Some canonical books were not received universally by the early church. James, Philemon, 2 Peter, 2nd and 3rd John were in some doubt. And then some extra-canonical books, on the other hand, were extremely highly regarded by the early church, even appearing in some of the early canons, uh, some some of the canonical lists. So, you know, at the end of the day, we, we look at these, and it's possible to narrow down the list, but to, to actually come up with the exact 27 books of the New Testament... Uh, we, we come up short. Okay, so how are we going? How are we going to decide? How do we know that we have the right twenty-seven books? I say here there's sort of one crowning capstone criterion that I that I want to uh, suggest here. I say in the absence of conclusive, conclusive, objective criteria for canonicity, it seems necessary to argue for the canon that we have, twenty-seven books based on the following two points. One, the corollary from inspiration. Since God's purpose in giving his inspired word was to equip believers thoroughly in every age, it follows that we must have succeeded in finding it. Okay, So we must have found them. Otherwise, God's purposes and inspiration are thwarted. Uh, so maybe there was a little bit of, uh, of a muddy period early on in the church, but we can be very confident that that we have succeeded in discovering this body of truth that God says is sufficient for life and godliness. So that's our first and, first and I guess when you say we, you would say we true believers have. Right. Because we're going to exclude the Roman Catholics here. Right. We're going to say we true gospel believers have, have discovered. Right. Of course, remember the Roman Catholics. I don't know. If, I don't really have anything about that here. But the Apocrypha, if you if you look at the history of that, that was written. That was included. It was not. It was not part of any canon until the 16th century. It was a response to Martin Luther. Okay? Martin Luther was pointing out problems in the Roman Catholic Church. And so the Roman Catholic Church expands the canon to include books that would actually strengthen the Roman Catholic position. So, I mean, it was a bit of... It was very underhanded. And historically, those 14 books uh, are not canonical. Some of them are helpful material. 
particularly thinking about the Maccabees, the, the three books of Maccabees there. They're, they're very useful giving giving some history of the intertestamental period and all that. Uh, but as far as them being canonical, they were not recognized either by the Old Testament community or the New Testament community as canonical. Really, they were a very late addition, and for that reason, I think there, there's just so many factors against uh, the Apocrypha that, uh, to me, it's not even a question. It, there's a sense in which we can say that, you know, the, the Catholic Church for 1,500 years pretty much had it right. Uh, so, yes. The other argument, then, is the uniform internal testimony of the Spirit. Now, we mentioned earlier that God's Spirit effectively works to make people know the truth. Remember, we have this unction, this anointing from the Holy Spirit, and you know all truth. Whether it holds up, I'm not sure, but Calvin says that you can recognize all truth. We read his commentary on 1 John. So if that's the case, it follows that, allowing for some discrepancies due to self-deception and such, the Spirit is going to collectively witness the same way to believers everywhere. And so, I don't want to play the numbers game here, but but if 90% of the early church, including all of the leadership, is uniformly saying that these are the books, then we can have a pretty good idea that those are the books, because the Holy Spirit does witness in a unif- uniform way. It's not as though he's going to tell certain people these are the right books and certain other people these are the right books. He's going to be uniformly, he's going to be witnessing uniformly. Uh, so it shouldn't it wasn't really all that long before they were able to come up with a canon. In fact, you know, I, probably it's exaggerated when we say that uh, the the canon wasn't absolutely established until the early fourth century, because you know, up until the Council of Nicaea, which is what three twenty three BC uh, AD, right? The the church was just you know, being mercilessly persecuted. Uh, and, uh, and that it reflects in the in the writings of the church fathers being all over the map. Because they couldn't get together as a group and decide, okay, what's orthodox? You know, the, uh, but, it's, but at the Council of Nicaea, we finally get these, get these, these leaders of the church all together in one place and they start hammering out these things. And it's not very long afterward that we have the authorized list of the, of, of the New Testament canon. That's very well established. So, it, yeah, it doesn't happen until the early 4th century that we have you know, pretty much uniformity on what the New Testament canon is. But as soon as everybody's able to get together, it doesn't take long. So, uh, so probably a little bit exaggerated that it took three centuries to get the Bible put together. Okay. You know, the story is told about, uh, you know, the because the, 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 they they were they were persecuted all the way almost all the way up to this point where the Council of Nicaea is is is, is held and uh, the reports are that uh, these fathers of the church come from all corners of the of the the old Roman Empire. Most of them are missing limbs, uh, blind, deaf because of 
but because of the intense persecution that hardly any of them who came to this meeting were holy um, because of that. But once they got together, they really they really whipped things together, whipped things up in a, in a good hurry. So, so, so don't imagine that that three centuries means that there's a lot of doubt. I, I think that's probably an exaggeration. Your thoughts on that? Well, only that, and it wasn't in those first few centuries. And some people said there's 40 books in the New Testament, or there's right. <clears throat> it's just that we don't have complete, you know, every we don't have well, the, the, the writers we have. They'll talk about maybe 25 books, 24. Just because you don't list every book doesn't mean they didn't know about them. You know, they're not they're not they're not sitting down writing. Now, here's the canon of the New Testament. They're not saying that. So. But there's no reason to doubt that. I mean, there's, you know, the evidence we have suggests that they accept. We, we know, for instance, for sure, I always used to say, the epistles of Paul and the Gospels were accepted immediately. And they become that doctrine of orthodoxy that you say. So there is no one in the early church who questions any of Paul's 13 epistles. No one writes and says, well, that, I don't know if that's really scriptural or not. Or they, where they have doubts is, is like, the book of Hebrews only in the sense of well it seems right but who wrote it you know things like that that's the question that it, it it bears the internal testimony of the spirit when we read it but you know who wrote that book is you know that's the question that, that plagues sometimes and then some of the very shortest books of the yeah. New Testament like the like John's epistles yeah. second and third John are a question but probably not because there was any doubt it was just because they're so short, they're not cited very often. Yeah. Um, so, so they don't appear on, on. They didn't, you know. Some of the church fathers don't cite Second and Third John. Well, I don't cite Second and Third John very often either. It's just, uh, it's just they're very tiny little books. So. But the miraculous thing about the witness of the Spirit, or the t- internal testimony of the Spirit, is that it works in the sense that down through the history of the church. Until we get to that Catholic Counter-Reformation, there's there's no debates about they, they debate everything else in the world. They debate what you know churches churches have debated all kinds of things down through the centuries, but not what is the canon. Right. <laughs> they have accepted the 27 books of the New Testament. That's been universally accepted and 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 not really questioned at all. So at the end of the day, I think we have an extremely high level of certainty that we have the correct canon. In fact, I'm prepared to say we have 100% certainty that we have the correct canon in our in our possession. There might be verses or little sections here and there that are debated, but as far as the books, there's there's no question. And again, that's 323, right? Since 323. Well. What is that letter? Well, that letter of yeah. What we're talking about is a, a man named Athanasius, one of the church fathers. He wrote a, a letter, uh, an Easter letter. Bishops used to write a letter to their churches and say, "This is when we're going to celebrate Easter," because there was no definite. And in that Easter letter, he happens to list the twenty-seven books. So we always go back to that fourth century as the first real concrete letter. But that's after persecution is over, Constantine, you know. I mean, this guy from Charlotte has done some new work on that. What's this? Who's that new professor down there? That guy, uh, Reformed Seminary. He's the president of it. You know, uh, I can't think of his name. It's good. To, anyway, there's some new work that's out that suggests that there's they weren't 
there's some he he cites some church fathers who cited almost all of them, even in the second century okay. that I haven't even read. But yeah, it's it's mainly a problem of we have incomplete. We have we don't, nobody's nobody seems to be. Uh, it what what really happens is too, don't you think? Is once you start getting heresies, a lot of times then it's necessary to define what is orthodox and what isn't. And that, that kind of sets the stage, too, for the 4th century. But. I, I heard that the writings of the Church Fathers, they, they, they said you can almost piece together the New Testament by as many quotations as they have done. By you can. Yeah. In fact, yeah. often, if you, if you pick up a a Greek New Testament that's annotated, that they'll they'll include some of the writings of the Church Fathers as as evidence that we have the correct reading. That's when when there's disputed texts and such. So that's very common. Yeah, you can you can yes. Okay. So question here: Are there any, are there any inspired Materials that have been lost. We've already mentioned some of these letters that Paul wrote that we no longer have in our possession. What should we do if you know if we happen to be walking along the beach in Greece someday, and there on the on the, on the ground is a copy of of you know Third Corinthians? What do we do with that? Okay, there's some people who would suggest that we immediately put it into the canon. I have some doubts about that. Let's see if we can answer this. Laying aside the problem of verification. So if I find 3 Corinthians on the on the beach, it's going to be an awfully difficult thing to prove that this is 3 Corinthians. But, so laying that problem aside for sake of argument here, it would seem that the foregoing corollaries that we've just made from inspiration would answer this question in the negative. We would not include it in the Bible. Because if God's purpose and inspiration is to preserve a definitive rule of faith or canon for the church, it follows that his purpose has succeeded. If a book that should have been in the Bible all these years is suddenly found here in the 21st century, what that means is for 2,000 years the church didn't have the whole Bible. So whatever is included in Third Corinthians or the Epistle to the Laodiceans or, or or any number of other letters that potentially could could exist there, um, where was I going? Uh, so if we ever if we ever would find them, could you know identify them as Pauline or whatever, we would have to conclude either that they say nothing new, or that perhaps they. they that, I mean, it's possible we could say that there's some mistakes in them, but I, I think probably more the idea is that they're not necessary or give no new information that we don't already have. Okay, It would either be repeated material uh, or, or material that's not part of this block of material that's necessary for life and godliness. Useful, but, but, not, uh, but not authoritative. Probably more likely to find something that would prove what we have is already there. Could be, could be. But again, it'd be very difficult to 
to prove that this is Paul's letter at this stage of the game to say, oh, this is it. You know, it seems very unlikely that we would be able to prove that. Hi, Paul. <laughs> yeah, but even even then, we know throughout church history that that's, 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 that was done all the time. People would, you know, attach a, a, a famous name to a, a document in order to give it some credibility and it's spurious. So, so even if we found something that said I, Paul, you know, there's no, that doesn't prove, doesn't prove Yeah, there is a gospel according to Paul, a gospel according to Peter. There's all kinds of spurious yeah. writings. Right. So, I say here, losing such materials would be contrary to this purpose and thus would be impossible. We cannot lose a canonical book. Though apostolic writings surely were lost, we must conclude they do not contain material uniquely necessary for the believer. In Frame's words, we approach the question of canonicity with a presupposition that God will not let his people walk in darkness and that he will provide for us the words that we need to have within our reach. I think that line is, that little phrase is important here. So it's not just that they happen to survive in some cave somewhere, but they've been available to us all this time. So, if they haven't been available to us, then they're not part of the canon. Okay? Finally, last point on this idea of canonicity. We want to talk about the closure of the canon. That is, the canon is closed and there's nothing more to be added to it. Preceding arguments further suggest that the canon must necessarily be closed. Why? Well, because we've had everything we need for life and godliness for the last 2,000 years. So if we came up with a new document that's freshly minted, freshly written, it's not canonical because it's not part of that group, that block material. Why do I say that? Christ states that the apostles would remember and record all truth. All truth, John 14 says. This clearly doesn't mean that they're going to record it everything that Jesus ever ever said. John mentions that there, if we had that kind of a book, it would, uh, you know, it, it, would, it, would, it would fill all the literature today. Instead, this apparently means that they would record everything intended by God for inscripturation. Not all information available in the world, but rather they have everything everything that is necessary for this sufficient word. Also, these repeated warnings against adding to the authorized collection assumes that the scriptures, writers, had an exclusive and fixed canon in view. And so it's done. John stood on his head and said, don't add to this, we're done. Okay, so to add to it is, is a, you know, rather a scary thing to do. And then again, the argument from the purpose of God and inspiration precludes the possibility of an open canon. So the canon's closed. Uh, any anyone who comes along and says I've got something that is on par with Scripture, you can dismiss them immediately because uh, the canon's closed. We have everything that we need right here, and anything that people would happen to try to add to it, whether officially or unofficially, is is grounds for you know grounds for just ignoring them or worse. So thoughts on that? Of course, that speaks again also to the charismatic question as well. Perhaps not directly, because very few people are actually saying these are scriptures 
But I think it, it certainly points to the fact that there is no additional revelation of any sort. I think, you know, back to the church fathers, they didn't quote anything that wasn't in the scriptures necessarily and say that they were from Paul. Well, sometimes they would quote, they they wouldn't actually, okay, they they would make quotations of, of different books that aren't scriptural, but oftentimes they wouldn't say this is the word of the Lord. It was, you know, you know, if we were, you know, say if I was going to write a paper today or write an article for some journal, I'd cite the Bible some, and I'd cite other authors, and I probably wouldn't specify. Now, this is the Bible, and this is not the Bible, and neither did they in, in, the, in the the early church. They they quoted each other, they quoted the Bible, and sometimes it's not clear what they viewed as scripture and what they simply viewed as doing good research and comparative studies. So well, I'm just meaning like a letter of Paul, another letter of Paul that we don't know about wasn't quoted by them. You know what I'm saying? That I, I don't. I don't know. No, I, I wouldn't. I, so. <coughs> Paul references it, but other than that, I yeah. So. That's, the, that's the only reason we know about it. Okay, well, let's get this last point done. I think it can go pretty quickly here. Uh, We won't get to illumination tonight, but we'll certainly be able to get through that next time. But perspicuity, which is one of the funny words in theology, the word means clarity, (laughs) and nobody knows what it means, right? So it's it's an unclear word that means clear. So it's the clarity of Scripture, perhaps we could say. Since God's purpose and inspiration was to provide a deposit of truth that thoroughly equips believers of every age, it follows that its message must be sufficiently clear for believers to understand it. Okay. So we can, we can open up the Bible and rather readily be able to ascertain the central message of the Scriptures. So that's what perspicuity means. It's the clarity of Scripture. In Thompson's words, Perspicuity is that quality of the biblical text that, as God's communicative act, ensures its meaning is accessible to all who come to it in faith. Grudem ideas, this fellow we mentioned earlier, Grudem defines the idea with slightly different emphasis, describing perspicuity to mean that the Bible is written in such a way that all things necessary for our salvation and for our Christian life and growth are very clearly set forth in Scripture. John Frame says something similar. Scripture is always clear enough to carry out our present responsibilities before God. So that's that's the point. Together, I think these definitions communicate that no Christian who uses his regenerate mind and is able to read can fail to learn the Scripture's basic message, everything he needs to know for his spiritual welfare. Recognize that the Bible is revelation. That is, it's not its intention is not to conceal its convention. It, its intention is to reveal. And so the Bible is written with that in view to to give light as the as the psalmist writes, the unfolding of your words gives light. It reveals. It gives understanding to the simple 
Note also that much of the Bible is addressed not to the ecclesiastical elites, but to the churches, which is actually kind of actually kind of odd at times, because you would expect that the uh, letters would be written to the pastors. Uh, but oftentimes, Paul and Peter and some of the others, they, they just sort of bypass the pastor. They make him a token reference at the end of the letter here, but it's actually kind of weird. Uh, which sort of draws attention to the fact that this was written to the common man. And the common man should have been able to to hear it and understand what it what it what it means and, and put it into put it into action. There are a couple of qualifications I want to make here because we all recognize that some of the Bible isn't as clear as we'd like it to be. So so how are we going to handle that? Well, it does not mean that all of Scripture is equally easy to understand. Uh, Peter actually says that Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. So, so he so he so he recognizes that not everything that's in the Bible is just extremely simple. Some of it's complex. Some of it's difficult to understand. Yeah, that's actually comforting to me. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 <clears throat> It doesn't mean, of course, that believers can't misunderstand Scripture. Jesus' disciples regularly misinterpreted Christ in the Old Testament prophets. He has to correct them. There's uncertainty about the role of Old Testament structures in the New Testament community. Should we have circumcision? Should we should we keep implementing these these distinctive features of the law? Well, it resulted in much debate. <laughs> but they couldn't decide. They, they 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 couldn't they couldn't discern from what was there whether it should be implemented in the early church. And so they get together as, as a council. Obdurate hearts sometimes could not see the significance of God's word. You know, you do not understand why. Because you're sinners. Others erred by failing to correctly apply the received laws of language. Uh, Peter speaks of the scriptures being distorted. And then others went beyond what the scriptures said uh, to say that, uh, you, know, you know, we're particularly thinking of the Pharisees, for instance, here, who took what they knew the scriptures said and said, well, the implications of that are additional laws that we should implement as well, and the implications of those laws are additional laws that we should... And so they, so they ended up with a, a rather complex set of rules and laws uh, that exceeded what the Bible said, and so... Again, this all speaks to perspicuity that not all of the scripture is equally clear. And it doesn't mean that there's no need for trained teachers in the church. And if it was all perfectly clear to us, why would we spend the time, you know, preparing sermons and writing books and such? Just, you know, hand everybody a Bible and say, go go at it. Uh, but uh, we do need trained teachers, we, need, we do need people who come along and become experts in what the scriptures say uh, so, that, uh, so that it can be explained. So in the words of the Westminster Confession, a sufficient understanding of scripture employs the youth of ordinary means, which includes prayer and the assembled church with its officers. And so that those are part of the ordinary means of grace and the ordinary means of understanding what the Bible says is the, the collective minds of, of the whole church. So, 
the Bible is clear. I mean, yeah, granted, there are some things that we have head scratchers. You know, what are what are these head coverings? And so I had that question come up again this week. But uh, you know, there's there's questions that we end up having. But at the end of the day, what we really need to know about how we're going to obey Jesus Christ and live godly lives, it's it's pretty clear to us. We know we know what's there. So the message, the gospel, and such. Okay, thoughts on that? What happens to all the people like the, who are under Catholicism that actually never read the word that were told? This is what it said, but they weren't really giving them the truth. Yeah, that's a problem, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's... <clears throat> scriptures were there. And when, I, when we talk about the, uh, the, the preservation of Scripture, it doesn't mean that everybody in the church always had it. You know, that's true. Uh, nonetheless, the Scriptures were around. Yeah, Martin Luther came out and right. kind of turned the tables on yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that upends the idea that the scriptures were there. Oh, yeah. Available. Yeah. It's just that they never actually read it for themselves. They were told what it said. Right. Yeah, it's a problem. Other thoughts? Okay, next time we'll talk about this last topic here of illumination, which is something that can be a thorny topic. Should get some quick feedback, but I think you'll probably be all pretty much pretty much where you need to be. But we'll talk about that, and maybe give just to give give a short time here, talk a little bit about dispensationalism, some of the just the essentials of it. But uh, we won't have time to really make a thorough study of it. So we'll see you next time for the last time.